On the 48th floor of a glistening tower on the southern tip of Manhattan, Mitch McDeer stood alone in his office and gazed out the window at Battery Park and the busy waters beyond. It was a spectacular view that Mitch tried to appreciate at least once each day. Occasionally, he succeeded, but most days were too hectic to allow time for such loafing. He was on the clock. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Brian. And I'm Barbara. Today we're reviewing The Exchange by John Grisham, number one on the November 5th and November 12th, 2023 lists. So let's start with the author. What do we know? John Ray Grisham Jr., 68-year-old author born in Jonesboro, Arkansas, grew up in Mississippi. Wanted to be a baseball player, but gave that up at age 18 when a pitcher nearly beamed him in the head. He dove out of the way of the pitch, and as he was rolling around in the grass, gasping for breath, listening to everyone laughing at him, he realized he didn't want to play baseball anymore. (laughs) Plus, the coach cut him from the team two days Uh, later. So he worked on a road construction crew for a while until a gunfight broke out among the crew, and he had to hide in a nearby restroom to avoid flying bullets, which got him serious about going to college where he majored in accounting. Uh, Accountants rarely get shot at or have baseballs aimed at their heads. Depending on their clientele. Yes. He went on to law school intending to become a tax lawyer, but eventually shifted his interest to civil litigation, which is understandable. Mm. He started practicing in 1981. Grisham wrote his first book, A Time to Kill, after witnessing a 12-year-old girl tell the jury about how she'd been raped and beaten. That book was published on a rather limited run after being rejected by 28 publishers. It didn't do well enough to make him change careers, but he decided to give writing one more chance. His second novel, The Firm, was on the New York Times bestseller list for 47 weeks. Nice. Nice enough to convince him this writing thing might just work out. Which started a long string of annual Grisham legal thrillers, not only making the bestseller list, but often ending up in the top 10 of the year. In fact, he had the number one best-selling novel of the year for seven years straight, 1994 to 2000, until he got pushed out of the first spot by the, the Left Behind series. Remember that? That yeah. was 2001. I read that And series. then by The Da Vinci Code in 2003. Many of his novels have been made into Hollywood blockbusters. The Firm with Tom Cruise, The Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington, The Rainmaker with Matt Damon, and a lot of others. Family? He married Renee Jones in 1981, and they have two children, Ty and Shay. He and his wife established the Rebuild the Coast Fund, which raised nearly $9 million for victims of Hurricane Katrina. So where are the Grishams hanging out these days? They've got one home in Destin, Florida, on the Gulf Coast, but down the road from his Mississippi roots. Plus a home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, and one more in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, Why not three posh homes with all that movie money? And novel writing money. It's all mixed together. So what about this new Grisham book? The Exchange is his 48th novel. Wow. Yeah, 334-page suspense story published by Doubleday. The gender of the readership, about 50-50, male-female. The audiobook, nine hours and one minute, voiced by Eduardo Bellarini, who has recorded authors such as Daniel Silva, Dean Koontz, 
James Patterson. Also books like War and Peace and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. So he does classics as well as genre fiction. What did you think of his narration? Well, the narration was fine. It was clean. It was Mm. easy to listen to, easy to follow, didn't get in the way. The Exchange is a follow-up to Grisham's breakthrough novel from 1991, The Firm, in which the author introduced the character Mitch McDeer, a young attorney fresh out of Harvard Law School who enthusiastically takes his first position with a Memphis law firm only to discover it's a coven of mob lawyers who want to pull Mitch into their corrupt web. By the end of that novel, Mitch has turned over enough evidence to get most of the firm and a lot of their clients indicted. He's stolen $10 million of mob money, and he's chilling on the beach in the Cayman Islands with his wife and brother, hoping that he himself doesn't get indicted and that there aren't enough mobsters left free to come after him for revenge. So the exchange... Grisham's first follow-up to the firm takes place 15 years later, 2005, with Mitch and his wife Abby settled into nice Manhattan-based positions. Mitch is a junior partner at the large international law firm Scully and Pershing, and Abby is a senior editor at Epicurean, a press specializing in high-end cookbooks. They have twins, Clark and Carter, eight-year-old boys who like talking baseball, playing baseball, and when their games are rained out, eating pizza with their teammates while they talk baseball. (laughs) We get a little sketch of how Mitch and Abby made the transition from gangland fugitives to high-powered New York City careerists, something about bopping around Europe for a few years until the coast had cleared. But the story focuses on events in 2005, starting with a death penalty case back where it all began in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, apparently Scully and Pershing require their attorneys to take a substantial pro bono case every year. And Mitch is asked to go back to the scene of his first job nightmare and try to get a stay of execution for convicted killer Ted Kearney. This gives him and and us readers a chance to revisit the old Memphis haunts and check in with the few attorneys still around there who didn't go to jail. But Mitch's work on this case hasn't even gotten started before Kearney is found in the death row shower room hanging from an electrical cord dead. The authorities call it a suicide, so Mitch heads back to New York where the main case of the book gets started. Yes. The main case case is this. Mitch is assigned to a big international civil case. The country of Libya is apparently refusing to pay hundreds of millions of dollars they owe to a construction company called Lanak, who they'd hired to construct a big vanity project for their egotistical and erratic dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. Remember him? Mitch brings onto his team a young Italian lawyer, Giovanna Sandroni, and during the team's first visit to the bridge job site, she gets kidnapped. And her entire security team is murdered, gruesomely. While Mitch himself is, fortuitously, not on the site, but in the ER being treated for a nasty case of food poisoning. So does Mitch recover from this poisoning? And was it really just an accident? Are Giovanna's employers, with help from the relevant governments, able to figure out who is responsible for the kidnapping and either take them out or at least exchange her for a ransom? Does Mitch recover from his poisoning, get on his feet, back on the case, and find a way to make Libya pay the money owed his client? Most importantly, does he wrap it all up and return to New York quick enough to make the Twins' next Little League game? Yeah, that last one, that's not actually a joke. It does seem to be what Mitch cares about the most in this book, his kids' baseball. For answer to these and other questions, read the book. As we did. So let's talk about what we thought. Well, let's jump in. Grab and grip. What about it? Did this book pull you in and keep you there? So at first, this looked promising for me. So I guess grab was better than grip. 
I read the entire book, The Firm, prior to reading The Exchange, so I would be up on all the juicy details and see how everything relates and connects to the previous story. And it was sorely disappointing for me. So while Mitch is sent to Memphis on this case that's a dead end, literally, he just checks in with his old lawyer buddy, fresh out of prison, and bygones are just bygones. And then he just goes back to New York with no consequences, just goes right into the next situation, and all that mob business just fades into the rear view. I found that unbelievable. And then the next situation was far less exciting than the firm situation. That book had me on the edge of my seat, biting my nails, even though it was the third time through it and I knew how it would come out. It was suspenseful all the way until the Mm. final page. But this, uh, the exchange was just not the firm. I gave it a two. It was weird that that opening sequence didn't go anywhere. That really threw me. It's almost like he wrote it years ago. Stuffed it in a drawer. I was wondering, why is this set in 2005 or six, you know, and then didn't come back to it and then decided, I'm not going to make this the main escapade of the new book, the the death row thing. That really threw me. There's even a line where he says they called it a suicide. So I'm like, oh, he's going to go and investigate whether this guy was knocked off before he could be executed. None of that. Right. The main story is about two things, the getting Libya to pay the money they owe and the woman getting kidnapped, the associate, Giovanna. Right. Those are interesting. Those are, you know, promising, but it didn't pay off. So my grab and grip also was okay at the beginning and got low. The problem is Mitch is a international lawyer, and it's realistic. There's not that much he can do about the kidnap situation. So quite a bit of it is actually him sitting in meetings being bored. <laughs> There's not much he can do. A lot of the action that happens around these terrorists that kidnap her is off stage, so to speak. And we hear about, oh, some commandos attacked these terrorists. We hear about it from a distance, just like Mitch does. Right. Part of his involvement in trying to get her free is raising money. That's kind of a little boring, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying you should turn him into a action hero. I'm saying that 99% of international law and probably any lawyer's work is boring. So focus on the interesting parts. He's got us sitting in meetings where, uh, here's a quote, Mitch was suddenly bored with the briefing. <laughs> and here's another one at, at a hearing. By the time he finished discussing his third expert, an expert in cement, He was certain all three judges were asleep. And I wrote in my notes, as are we. (laughs) So don't pick the boring parts of his job as a lawyer to write about. Yeah. That takes away the grab and grip. Now, Abby, his wife, gets pulled into the case because the terrorists pick her as the go-between. That worked for me. That was refreshing and interesting. But but she's she's not on stage all that much. And even when she is, they're not prepping her. They're not like they'll they're worried about her safety. And then she's actually in the situation. And she has no idea what to do. I'm like, <laughs> oh, could we not have prepared her in some way? Very frustrating. I think if he had built that up more, it would have it would have helped. So what did I give for this category? Grab and grip. I gave it a two, just like you did. Mm-hmm. Our next category is he got flair, his writing style. Yeah, so, I mean, I like Grisham. I actually, Mm. I read A Time to Kill, you know, before I went to law school, I read The Firm. Time to Kill was astounding. I still remember the twist at the end. I mean, it was amazing. I felt like this story in the exchange had no heart. 
it was sort of confused and unfocused. There wasn't a lot of snappy dialogue. There was Hmm. very little dialogue, in fact. It was like the entire book for me sort of read like an outline that was narrated and not completed, which kind of goes to your theory, like maybe this was started in 2005. Well, it doesn't explain why it wasn't better edited in the present when he got back to working on it. Yeah. So even the there was a courtroom scene that I just, oh, as a lawyer, I just sort of cringed. I was very interested mm. to see how how he would do in court. I thought maybe he would be do something amazing. And it just, it wasn't, there wasn't even enough like dialogue, some testimony that could have been interesting and dramatic. There wasn't. <laughs> there was this issue in front of the court in the scene about whether Mitch should amend his pleadings in the litigation against the folks who were responsible for the bridge to nowhere. I'm bored already listening to you summarize it. I know, but I'm like, of course <laughs> he has to tell the court he has to amend his pleadings. Like, he can't surprise. Like, it was just, it wasn't believable. It wasn't authentic. And it struck me as very disappointing. I don't know how crackling his style is generally. I know he's known as a straightforward pro stylist. And that works if the story is good. But you still want some snappy dialogue here and there. I had to like really search to find a couple. I did find a couple good examples, but they're they're involving Abby, which was really, to me, the strength of the book, even mm. though she wasn't any of the major characters. I'll give you an example. When the terrorists contact her and implicitly threaten her and his family, and it gets pretty intense for them, yeah. there's a little exchange where Mitch says to her, I really want a gun. And she says, come on, Mitch. Seriously, the bad guys have plenty of guns. I'd feel safer if I had one in my pocket. You've never held a gun, Mitch. Giving you one would endanger half the city. <laughs> we need more of that. Yeah. She's got a great line. This yeah. is actually the is maybe her thought when she's taking calls from her terrorist contact. What's the proper greeting to a terrorist on a rainy Saturday morning in Manhattan? Yeah. That was a good line. So there's a few... But I agree with you. There's too much summary in this book. Summary is when you don't put the dialogue in. Okay, here's an example. When the apartment was quiet, Mitch and Abby returned to the kitchen. As always, it was still a mess. They finished loading the dishwasher. Later, he called Abby and checked on the boys. All was well at home. So if you don't show them talking to each other, I'm not getting to know them. You're losing opportunities for something Right. Slightly amusing to happen. Maybe somebody's slamming the dishes around because they're frustrated and upset and scared. And maybe they have a little scene where they connect and she yeah. cries. I mean, anything could happen, but it didn't. I agree with you. It feels like it was an outline that wasn't fleshed out, that wasn't finished. Yeah. There's there's some other things about his style that I put down here. And I don't know if you noticed this. There's some weird travel logging. There's like yes. an abundance of scenes where people are in airports waiting, waiting for their connection. And he literally describes what they go through. Here's a here's a quote. British air flight number 55 departs JFK this evening at 510. There are seats in business class, but book one now. There is a three hour. L- what? <laughs> Why are you including all this? You know There's what's so another fu- scene. The lot. Okay, well, what's so funny about that is that we were in the Qatar airport while I was listening. Oh to Oh my this gosh! Book. <laughs> Here's another example. The layover in London's Gatwick Airport was three hours and twenty minutes. To kill time, she napped in a chair, watched the sunrise, read magazines, and worked on a lotion Laotian cookbook. Mm. Okay, so she's in the airport, killing time, and she's bored. Why are you telling us this? Right. We're reading your book because we're in an airport bored. <laughs> Because that's what they sell in the airport bookstores. There's only 20 books for sale, and one of them is yours. Right. Okay? Is this some kind of weird meta thing that's right. like some experimental fiction? Let's write about boring stuff while people are bored killing time. 
killing you're me. torturing me <laughs> it's not like you know reading a beach book on the beach those are inherently pleasurable activities <laughs> and i'm not exaggerating he's got like what half a dozen of these little vignettes of you know what they say when you're first learning to write? Write about what you know. Mm. Well, well, apparently John Grisham knows what it's like to sit around in an airport waiting for his connections. I guess so. I'm sorry. Edit that out. I ended up giving his flair a two. And I gave it a one. Okay. I'm glad to hear that some of his other novels crackle and pop a little better. Let's yes. go on to Beam Me Up. This is the world building. The only thing I enjoyed about this world was listening to these lawyers talk about how nearly every firm in big law dips into its line of credit during slow times. <laughs> I'm like, hallelujah, my little law firm must be just as good as big law. <laughs> you circle those lines. Right? Otherwise, this world was pretty devoid of heart, soul, meaning, suspense, at least for me. I I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to spend more time in it. Like, it felt like I didn't even have enough details to know, you know, too much about it. Like the sketch that we had, I didn't want to be in. Look, I'm going to I'm going to develop that myself with a couple of examples. But let's start with something more positive. I did. I was interested in the big law aspect, too. I really wanted to, to get to know this world. It was promising. And I'll give you one example of a scene that did work for me. So after they're contacted by the kidnappers and they demand, I think it was $100 million. A lot of Mitch's work becomes, how am I going to piece together that much money? Some of it will come from her father, Luca. Some of it will come from the insurance company. Some will come maybe from some governments. But a lot of it may come from their own firm. So there's a scene where the the management team, the steering committee of the, of the firm, mm-hmm is meeting to discuss whether they're going to take out a very big loan to cover the $100 million ransom until these other players pony up. Which, of course, they should. Yeah, and they he describes how each partner makes $2 million a year. And they've been doing this year after year after year. The firm can actually swing this loan. So the question is, will they agree to it? And you've got people like Sheldon Morlock saying, I'm not going to risk everything I've worked for and the financial security of my family by guaranteeing a bank loan in the amount of $90 million. It's out of the question. So I wanted to play as our audio example, sort of near the end of this corporate meeting where they where we get to see a little inside how these people think. Ali LaForge said, look, I hate debt. You know that. I have none, never have. My father went bankrupt when I was 12 years old, and we lost everything. I hate banks, and you've all heard this speech before. Count me out. He still lived in a bungalow in Queens and took the train to work. And because of his tight-fistedness, he undoubtedly saved more money than anyone in the room. Mavis Chisenhall was another tightwad. She looked at Mitch and asked, Would you sign a personal guarantee, Mitch? The perfect question. One he was begging for. He got to his feet, pulled out a folded sheet of paper, tossed it to the center of the table, and said, I've already signed it. There it is. Yeah, so that was a good example. And actually, it was a little little bit more dialogue, and the dialogue is what's so interesting and suspenseful. And this was a big moment where, of course they should, and Mitch gets a chance to play his card. And It, It works. We get, like you said, the dialogue builds the scene. Yeah. And he's got numbers of different characters there, and they're sort of developed. We get a little taste of their personality as they, as a team, decide not to take out the loan. Yeah. And and it shows the tight-fistedness, the greed, the fear, whatever you want to call it, of these these high rollers. On the other hand, 
the book doesn't have very much of that. There's not a lot of inside baseball that mm. draws me into this kind of writing. I want to I want to see the inner workings of Big Law because I don't really know anything about it. What he goes for instead is what you might call big boy porn, or I also called it lifestyle porn. <laughs> Let's just show how big they are, and that mm. will be enjoyable to the readers. Remember Regis Philbin, Lifestyles? The re it's yeah. really like that. He does that a lot. Mm. Here's a quote. One great asset of working at Scully and Pershing was its sheer size. Its lawyers were known to often walk with a little swagger because of the firm's remarkable reach and depth. There had never been a bigger law firm. In the world of big law, being number one was the envy of firms two through 50. In my little notes, I wrote, size matters. <laughs> Indeed it does. <laughs> okay. Guess what? That doesn't work for me. <laughs> I want to have little inside details, and I want to see these people as real human beings. And I don't want to sit back in awe of how spectacularly big these law firms are. Unfortunately, I ended up giving the world building here a one. Mm. And what did you say you gave it? I think I gave it a two. Well, let's talk about Newbiff's friends. Maybe the characters carry the book. Yeah, so the problem with that is I already liked Mitch McDeer. Mm -hmm. I liked Abby McDeer. I had just spent 17 hours listening to the firm right before starting the exchange. And I was completely invested in their saga, their struggle, Mitch's brilliance in getting through, you know, the suspense from the first book. But the world built in the firm yeah. is not the world in the exchange. And the characters are just, they're just not, they're so... The bigger the firm, the smaller the lawyer, it uh, seems to me. Including and, Mitch? Yeah. And I didn't even care about his kids enough to feel any suspense. And that's unusual. Like, uh, how <laughs> hard is it to throw in a few details so I actually care about the kids? I gave this category a 1.5. Between Abby and the kids, there was something to build. Or even with Mitch. But with Abby and the kids, they weren't in the book enough. Right. And with Mitch, I'm sorry, I disliked him. I don't know how he comes across in the original book, the firm. But you know how he came across to me? Smug self-satisfied, self-deluded. He's got this thing that Grisham does several times where, where, where Mitch is reflecting on his meteoric rise. So here's a quote. As he often did while traveling on the far side of the world, Mitch smiled at the thought that he was undoubtedly the only boy from Kentucky on the flight. <laughs> I'm thinking, jerk. <laughs> you know, self-satisfied. He talks mm. about the other lawyers that Mitch works with. And the fathers that take their kids to these baseball games. And he says, almost all the fathers were in finance, law, or medicine. And they were from well-to-do families. They were in New York now on the biggest stage, living the big life, proud of their success. I'm like, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> the self-delusion, did you catch the little thing about the schools they send them to? That was kind of interesting and weird. I'll just read it. Mitch and Abby still worried about their son's education. They were paying for the best in the city. But they, like most parents, wanted more diversity. Unlike the rest of the world, River Latin, where these two boys go, was 90% white and all male. However, as products of mediocre public schools, they realized that they only had one opportunity to educate their children. For the moment, they could not foresee changing schools. I'm like, what world do you live in? This line, like most parents, they wanted more diversity. Well, then either act on it mm -hmm. or stop fooling yourself. Because guess what? We live in Ohio. Mm -hmm. People around here don't want more diversity. <laughs> so that's what I called self-delusion. There's just mm. nothing appealing enough about him for me to get connected. And then he's got this entirely unconvincing epiphany that we 
got a taste of in that board meeting that mm-hmm. we played where he decides the $10 million he stole from the mob 15 years ago, apparently he's put it in a bank account and let it sit there because he felt vaguely guilty, which was not the way the book ended. They were down there in the Cayman Islands living it up. Well, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think there was any indication that they were going to hesitate to spend that money. So, he certainly seemed entitled to it yeah. at the time. So something's happened in Grisham's mind where this needs to be redeemed. And he's got this thing. Uh, here's a quote. It's been earning interest for 15 years tax-free. We think this is the perfect time to unload most of this money. For some reason, we've always felt like it's not really ours. We're kicking in another $10 million. Yeah. It's- <laughs> okay. Where did that come from? <laughs> So that that epiphany, that sort of moral shift did not, it wasn't convincing to me. So I ended up giving new best friends one. Yeah. What'd you give it? I gave it a 1.5. <laughs> so let's wrap it up. Our big category at the end is all the feels. So I did, really didn't have any strong emotional reaction to the book, except some incredulity at the situations and dis- disappointment in the courtroom scene and lack of suspense. And in my humble opinion, it was not a worthy sequel to The Firm. And I gave all the feels a one. I gave it a one. I, some of the things we've already talked about, like the weird thing about the whole sequence in Memphis going nowhere, yeah. uh, the passivity of Mitch just sort of watching all the action happen from a distance. There were squandered opportunities. Like I thought Giovanna, she was the kidnapped victim. There were like maybe two scenes of her in captivity. That could have been really built up and created some strong feeling. And he, he didn't do enough with that. Then there were some weird things, too, that detracted that we haven't talked about yet. There's a moral dilemma at the heart of the book. The book is called The Exchange. When you pay money to a kidnapper or a terrorist, that's called a moral hazard because you're creating the possibility that others will do this in the future by paying these people off. They recognize that a couple times in the book. He mentions it, that some governments have a policy of not contributing to these funds. The law firm itself realizes this is a dilemma. So you'd think it would be addressed. Well, it kind of is. At the very end, there's just a little dialogue and Mitch is talking to Stephen, who I don't even remember his role. He, Stephen says, have you ever stopped to think about how much misery those bad boys can create with $75 million? Because that's what they end up trying to pay them. And Mitch says, we had no choice because there was a life at stake. I wouldn't worry about it either. As long as it's bad actors killing one another, who really cares? That's the extent that they cover the, the moral hazard that they're creating by the central process of the book was let's pull this money together so we can get her out. And I won't even say if it's successful because that would be a spoiler. I'm just saying that's built throughout most of the book, trying to get the money. And they don't address the moral dilemma other than that to me comes across as dismissive. Yeah. The other thing that was weird, tell me if you picked this up too, is it felt like there were product placements throughout. Yes. And I'll give an example. I did notice that. She had always enjoyed British Air and was pleased that it would take her all the way to Marrakesh. And then seven pages later, another character says, I'm in London a lot and I always enjoy British Air. And Lufthansa, two of the best. I'm like, what? Look, if the publisher or the author want to sell a little space in their book, more power to them. But don't make it so damn obvious that it takes me out of my narrative trance that you're supposed to be creating. There's another one. When they're down in the, the Caymans working on the money side of all this, they're back in the Caymans like the first novel. And listen to this dialogue. Where are we staying? Ritz Carlton on Seven Mile Beach. Pretty nice. It's a Ritz. So? So isn't it supposed to be nice? <laughs> so I'm like, is this a real place? 
Guess what? Is it? It is. Yeah. There's a Rich Carlton on Seven Mile Beach in the Caymans. I guess it's supposed to be nice. So <laughs> if you're going to put the product placements in Grisham, you need to disguise them. That's a literary point. I'm not presuming that you got paid for these because I don't have any evidence of that. But it certainly reads like it. Mm. You need to <laughs> keep the flow going A little better. more flair. So my all the feels was a one. What would you say for all the feels? Mine was a one. Our overall score averaging these numbers is 1.45, a one and a half star rating. Almost. (laughs) Which puts it second from the bottom out of the 17 novels we've reviewed this year. Oh, wow. Just slightly below Simply Lies by David Baldacci, which got a 1.5. But still, well above Encore and Death by J.D. Robb, which at 1.15 is looking real good to clinch our worst bestseller of the year when we do our end of the year wrap up in a couple of episodes. On social media, the exchange is averaging 4.0 on Amazon, 3.77 on Goodreads, 3.23 on Storygraph, for a composite social media score of 3.67, making it, by a substantial margin, last out of the 17 bestsellers we've reviewed this year, and almost half a star below the next lowest, Baldacci's Simply Lies. So on that note, thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next episode when we review the latest Stephanie Plum mystery, Dirty 30 by Janet Ivanovich. Until then, keep dreaming, keep flying, keep laughing, keep crying, and don't stop until you've read them all. And Happy New Year when you have. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone.